If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Monday, February 28th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I can't remember a war starting off this badly, so it's the exception. Except, wait, that's not true. Let me think about from whose perspective it's going badly. Well, that'd be from our enemy's perspective. So in that regard, this war is going well. And in fact, the Russians being frustrated in Ukraine is just like every war I've ever observed as an American, which is to say it starts off seeming like it's going pretty well, at least from the perspective of the U.S. audience. That's what's happening here. And of those initially successful seeming wars, quite often they end in catastrophe after being begun in cakewalk. The scenes of free Iraqis celebrating in the streets, riding American tanks, tearing down the statues of Saddam Hussein in the center of Baghdad are breathtaking. Now, this isn't to say that all things end poorly, that start poorly, the NATO bombing of Bosnia. Okay, that seemed like it was going poorly if your name was Retko Mladic, but it seemed from an American perspective as if the U.S. and NATO goals were being advanced. And in fact, you know, history looks back and thinks that over 100,000 lives were saved and a genocide averted due to that military intervention. The invasion of Grenada, I'm old enough to remember, the heroic liberation of an airstrip and evacuation of med students didn't have what you'd call an arc in the screenwriting trade, but it started off successful and ended successful. So U.S. news consumers are getting a lot of inspiring seeming messages out of Ukraine, and that's probably a combination of things, one of which is certainly that inspiring acts of bravery are certainly occurring. I know of no informed observer who says things are going well for Russia. And President Vladimir Zelensky has given brave speeches, as did Churchill, as did Rudy Giuliani after 9-11, perhaps as did Ratko Mladic in the eyes of his partisans in 1995. I fear that what we're imbibing and what's being presented to us is something like Ukrainian resilience porn. We've seen all the stories, the stories of the ladies from Ukrainian villages making Molotov cocktails. The BBC did one of these stories. Nobody thought that this would how, how we would spend our weekend. Like, uh, nobody thought, but now we're doing this and it seems like the only important thing to do now. It is of great symbolic importance. It rallies the world to your cause, gives you something to do. But if it becomes actually important, if it's important that pensioners and mothers start throwing Molotov cocktails at the Russian army, that would be a horror. Because right now, Ukrainian military gains are being made by their military fighters, not the people back home who are engaged in mostly symbolic action that we're being told about that is convincing us has some part of this defiant stance. The Ukrainian citizenry showing resolve and bravery deserves our praise, but they are not the ones inflicting losses on the Russians. New York Times, front page today. One sleepy and picturesque, Ukrainian villages mobilized for war. The Times reports, quote, in eastern Ukraine, where Russian armored columns entered towns and villages, some local residents confronted soldiers with angry words. In northern Ukraine, a man knelt briefly in front of a tank. Left unsaid and unrecorded in the clips that I saw on social media of these events is what happened next, which was the tanks rolled on. And if the Russians start getting frustrated, they won't just roll on. And those acts of defiance will easily become acts of deadly defiance. 
One collective act of so thought deadly defiance was not those brave soldiers from Snake Island who told the Russian warship to go fuck yourself and paid with their lives. They're all alive. Demartyred is what happens when the whole story became known. Like I said, all of the experts I've seen who look at this, they've been surprised that the Russians have been stymied to the extent they've been thwarted thus far. But I worry. Russia is unquestionably the second strongest military in the world. Stories of pluck and bravery, as much as we're receptive to them, are stories and war is war. On the show today, I spiel about the madman on the Volga, the Moscow maniac, more Rasputin than Putin, Vladimir Putin. Is the talk of him being crazy just crazy talk? But first, to understand how power curdles, it helps to have a guide to look back at history. The United States provides ample history of its own in this regard. The story of Watergate has been told many times, but never all in one place until now. Here to talk about power, corruption, and Achilles' heels is Garrett Graff, author of Watergate, A New History. Having read Watergate, A New History by Garrett M. Graff, I've come to this conclusion. Richard Nixon was the most consequential figure of post-World War II 20th century America. Okay, two-term president, that's going to be a consequential figure. Maybe Ronald Reagan's in the running. If I want to feel good about myself in America, I'd nominate Martin Luther King. But no, I think it's Nixon. I think not just what he did, but also what he represented. He put in place the politics we're pretty much living in today. The backlash against Nixon led to uh, a raft of reforms, but also the actual accomplishments of his administration were extremely important. Just look at the EPA. The thing about Garrett's new book, Watergate and New History, is if I never wanted to think globally, if all I wanted to do was revel in the ephemera, it's all there. It is 700 pages hundred of them of notes of the authoritative history of Watergate. It's pretty amazing. Garrett Graff joins me. Thanks for coming on, Garrett. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So I think we need to start with Dick Tuck. No, we don't, but I'd like to. The point is you can't really, you don't really know where to start. So let's just pick someone I'd never heard of, has an interesting name, and is fun and tells us something about Watergate. Who is Dick Tuck? So Dick Tuck's a, another one of those uh, names that I myself didn't really know until I got into researching this book. And I think it, uh, I'll explain who he is in a second, but I think what was so fascinating to me in the research for this whole book was just this absolutely zany cast of very weird characters who populate the Nixon orbit and the world of American politics around Watergate. Um, Dick Tuck is really the person uh, who drives Richard Nixon crazy. Um, <laughs> he is a Democratic American political consultant, and he devotes his career to uh, sort of launching harmless but highly annoying tricks uh, against Richard Nixon's 
various campaigns. Um, and, and as you said in the introduction there, you know, we forget just how hugely sweeping Richard Nixon's career actually was. He was on the national Republican presidential ticket five times in the 20th century. The only person who equaled that in either party was FDR himself. And uh, Nixon, you know, runs for governor in California. He's in Congress. And at almost every turn is dogged by Dick Tuck, who does things like, you know, sort of harmless little campaign tricks, you know, stealing the shoes of Nixon campaign workers who are left outside their hotel rooms to be shined overnight. At one point, he he gets, and you know, remember, this is the 50s and 60s, so there's a ton of, uh, you know, sort of dark racist stuff happening in here. He gets pregnant black women to march around Nixon's hotel wearing Nixon's The One t-shirts. Um, he gets signs made in Chinese for people to hold up around Richard Nixon uh, when Nixon goes campaigning in Chinatown in California at one point. All of these pictures uh, from the campaign event actually have these insulting phrases about Nixon in the in the background. And, and part of what why this matters to Watergate is that Richard Nixon sort of comes to believe that there's sort of always a dick tuck out there, that there's sort of always someone messing with him and doing dirty tricks, and that he's got to give as good as he gets. And that that mentality, sort of the idea that his enemies are always out to get him is what inspires and feeds this dark, paranoid mindset that permeates and drives Nixon and ultimately sort of creates the environment in which Watergate actually unfolds. Yeah. And so the counter Dick Tuck is a secret guy named what Graves, who is codenamed Sedan Chair, who hires uh, an undergrad named Roger Stone. Uh, so that's that's the ephemera part. But there's an aspect of this book that you could start anywhere. You could start with something huge like the one of the biggest conglomerates at the time, ITT, and how that caused Watergate. You could start with something small like Dick Tuck and his pregnant black women um, stunt, how that kind of caused Watergate. All of the maybe it's like that with history, but you do it so effectively that there are all these tiny little pebbles that amount to and wind up being, you know, a monument to this president's destruction. Yeah, I, I love that you sort of came away from the book with that sense, because uh, to me, part of what was so fascinating about this book, um, you know, the, Watergate is a story that has been sliced and diced in a thousand ways over 50 years. And yet my goal with this project was that it turns out that in a quarter century, no one has actually tried to sit down and tell the full narrative history of Watergate. And we've learned a tremendous amount of new information during that time about what actually transpired, who did what. You know, No one had ever tried to write a narrative history of Watergate knowing the identity of Deep Throat with full access to the Nixon tapes, to the full access of the files declassified from the FBI and the CIA. 
And this thing that we shorthand as Watergate, this idea you know, of this burglary on June 17th, 1972, of the DNC offices at the Watergate Hotel with the five you know, very weird burglars arrested that night. With $100 bills in their pockets and surgical gloves on their hands and nice suits, exactly. Exactly. It ends up being just a very small slice of this story. And that what Watergate really is is it is this umbrella for a dozen interrelated but distinct scandals. Um, you know, you mentioned ITT, you mentioned, you know, the Nixon's campaign dirty tricks, but there's, you know, Spiro Agnew's bribery scandal. There's the Chenault affair, which is sort of the story of Richard Nixon's you know, literal treason um, in the 68 campaign to prolong the Vietnam War. There's the Houston plan. There's Nixon's tax fraud. Um, there's all of these other things that sort of unfold under this Watergate umbrella. And that really Watergate was less an event and more a mindset. And it was this sort of wave of crime, corruption, and presidential abuse of power that gets all sorts of people mixed up in it over the course of the last four years of Nixon's presidency and ends up with, and this is, again, this thing that starts with the arrest of five burglars, but by the time everything is said and done, 69 people are indicted and charged with crimes growing out of Watergate, including New York Yankees owner George Steinbrenner, who ends up being convicted of campaign finance fraud uh, stemming from Watergate. <laughs> it's fantastic. So you know what everyone who has ever written or in any way memorialized their thoughts on Watergate knows. You've read everything. But we still and you still do not know, and there are theories, and you, you trace through the theories, A, why the Watergate was burglarized, and B, are we sure Nixon authorized it? And this is where, um, you know, one of the weirdnesses of the the history around Richard Nixon and Watergate comes, which is, you know, as I said, 69 people indicted and charged in the, you know, spiraling Watergate scandals in the year afterwards. But what most people don't realize is that the burglars, when they were arrested, it was actually the second burglary of the Watergate, that the same team of burglars had been in a couple of weeks earlier and had bungled it. And so they were coming back with more bugging equipment and camera equipment to try to fix the the problems of the first burglary. And that there are all sorts of questions still swirling about who actually ordered the burglary, um, why, and and who knew about it in advance. There, There is, you know, not insignificant evidence that the CIA actually knew about the burglary in advance and may have attempted to sabotage it. Um, that they, that the CIA might in some ways have uh, helped ensure the arrest of the burglars that night. Mm-hmm. And that among the, the sort of intriguing, loose, shaggy threads of that night is that two of the people involved that night, Howard Hunt and James McCord, are former CIA employees. One of the Cuban burglars from the Bay of Pigs invasion that gets recruited to be a burglar that night 
actually is an active CIA asset and is being paid $100 a month and is reporting to his handler on a regular basis about what he's doing with Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt. So this proves the CIA knew about it, at least. They have reason to believe that right. they knew about it. Right. Um, and, and that actually the G. Gordon Liddy, in all of his White House dirty tricks, had been relying on the CIA for technical assistance. They'd been providing him cover identities. They'd been developing his film. They, they'd even literally made the, like, office org charts for Liddy's dirty tricks operation when he goes to present it to John Mitchell, the campaign director and attorney general. And it's one of the it's one of the like wildest scenes in all of the Watergate story where G. Gordon Liddy gets the CIA to make up these charts outlining all of the dirty tricks that he's going to launch in the 72 campaign. And then he walks into the Justice Department and into the office of Attorney General John Mitchell and presents them all. And they're absolutely bonkers. It's like plans to kidnap anti-war activists, drug them, and take them to Mexico. It's plans to hire prostitutes to seduce and lure back to a rigged boat uh, uh, Democratic officials, um, you know, for blackmail purposes. They, right. It's, uh, you know, it's specially equipped spy planes that are going to follow George McGovern around. And he presents all of these plans in John Mitchell's office, in the office of the attorney general in January 1972. Um, and John Mitchell basically doesn't say this is highly illegal and we should definitely not be doing that. And please see the FBI agents in my outer office on the way out the door. You should be arrested, G. Gordon Liddy. He says, this just seems a little too ambitious, George. Um, and you should burn, <laughs> like, come back to me with slightly less ambitious plans. Right. And you should burn those charts. Yeah, either either pull back on the prostitutes on the boat or the kidnapping of the protesters. You can't really do both. You're spreading exactly. in. This is called Gemstone, right? It is. Operation Gemstone. And this is, this sort of becomes the genesis for everything that uh, G. Gordon Liddy and, and Howard Hunt and James McCord ends up unfolding over the course of that spring, um, you know, up to and including the Watergate burglary itself, as well as, uh, and again, this is sort of part of the story that most people don't know, their plan, if they had gotten away with the, that second Watergate burglary, was that same weekend they were going to break into George McGovern's campaign headquarters and bug that as well. So, the, you know, if they hadn't got arrested at, at the Watergate, they would have been out there the next night burglarizing the Democratic presidential campaign's offices. Right. So to go back to something you said, you know, this is amazing. This is unbelievable that the uh, attorney general of the United States presented these plans and doesn't say it's illegal. Yes, that is unbelievable for the attorney general to do it. But for Nixon's campaign manager to have that opinion, maybe not so unbelievable. And that's who John Mitchell was. And that goes to one of my original observations in the introduction. He changed the way politics was done. And before him, you'd staff the attorney general's office with people who were intent on upholding the law. But Nixon saw it as an opportunity for political favors, for instance. And that sort of impetus, you got to give him credit for many of the uh, initiatives he took internationally and with government agencies. But that impetus was 
you know, a Nixon innovation to turn everything political. And I think notwithstanding the fact that there were some, you know, sunshine laws and clean government after Nixon, I do think that that way to do politics obtained. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I and I think in many ways, Richard Nixon uh, is the hinge upon which the entire American century turns, that he ushers out the New Deal liberal consensus, you know, the the sort of FDR to Lyndon Johnson Great Society and launches us instead on this path to a much darker, racialized, nativist, fear-mongering strain of the Republican Party and American politics that a half century later finds its sort of natural conclusion in the candidacy and presidency of Donald Trump. Um, and, and that, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me in writing this book is, you know, Donald Trump's name appears precisely once in the text of the book. And yet his presidency really looms over every page of this story. Garrett Graff is the author of Watergate, A New History. And tomorrow we will come back. We'll do the Mark Felt Pass. And you may have noticed we haven't even talked about them getting caught. So we'll talk about that tomorrow. Garrett will join me. Thanks, Garrett. Thank you. And now the spiel. It matters if Vladimir Putin is crazy. Of course it does. A rational actor versus a crazy actor will make different choices, will negotiate differently, will respond to pushback differently, will be differently incentivized. However, since no one knows if Putin is mentally unbalanced and no one can know, not from afar, the time and energy expended on speculating whether he's crazy seems worse than a waste of time. It seems like it can convince us in the West to react to Putin in a different and worse way than if we just operated on the assumption that he's a dangerous man who will respond to incentives and punishments as he always has, stubbornly and belligerently, but not totally untethered to his self-interest. There are a couple of other problems with the Putin is a madman talk. One, the evidence is thin. A series of messaging efforts that Putin has engaged in, like a long rambling speech, is slightly different from his past pronouncements over the years, but it's not entirely un-Putin-esque. What really got the, has his caviar slid off its cracker crowd going, was that his bold, aggressive military action seems to be going surprisingly poorly. So, if columns of tanks were rolling through Kiev right now, instead of firing from the outskirts of town, Putin's sanity would be seen as more solid. And remember the phrase I used? It's going surprisingly poorly. You know who else it surprised? Really, all the experts in the West who thought Russia would roll right over the Ukrainians. If Russia's failure to do so implicates Putin's mental condition, then can all the world's experts get a totally clean bill of mental health? A miscalculation is still a calculation, and we don't even know if early Ukrainian armed forces successes are meaningful, permanent, or somewhat a product of Western wish fulfillment.
Thomas Ilves, former president of Estonia on this show, talked about Putin's mental state a couple of weeks ago. Okay, I thought a fine speculation from someone who knows the man, but not much more than that. But questioning Putin's sanity is now a popular pastime among news crafters. Jake Tapper tweeted a couple of days ago, interesting, from Senator Marco Rubio, R. Florida, vice chair of the Senate Intel Committee, who notes that Putin, quote, has created a system of people not telling him bad news or facts that contradict his preferences. He also appears to have some neuropsychological health issues. But most telling is that this is a man who has long prided himself on emotional control. His recent flashes of anger is very uncharacteristic and show an erosion in impulse control. And quote in tweet. I don't fault Tapper for telling us Rubio is of the apparent belief that Putin has gone baba for blinis, but this unsourced speculation doesn't help that much. But it does drive a big portion of the conversation. Here was George Stephanopoulos this week on This Week. There are more and more questions cropping up about the mental state of Vladimir Putin. And by the time the question's over, there will be more still. After citing former Russian ambassador Mike McFall's assertion that Putin's not rational, Stephanopoulos continued. I want to show a tweet we got from Marco Rubio uh, this week saying, I wish I could share more, but for now I can say it's pretty obvious to many that something is off with Putin. He has always been a killer, but his problem now is different and significant. It would be a mistake to assume this Putin would react the same way he would have five years ago. Is it the belief of the United States government right now that Vladimir Putin is mentally unbalanced in some way? Now, Stephanopoulos' guest, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki, brushed off the question as she should have. But right there, we heard of Marco Rubio again advancing the notion that some of Putin's Dasha doors have come off their hinges. But when Rubio was on Jake Tapper's show a few days before the invasion, the Florida senator described Putin's war preparations this way. It didn't start last month or last week. This, this has been going on for over a year. And I just felt he felt like this was the opportune time. They got elections in France. The U.S. has got its own issues domestically and focused on China. Energy prices are high. Uh, Germany has a new leader. Uh, you know, the U.K. is going through some tumult in their political process. And I think he felt like this was the ideal moment to sort of take action. If he didn't do it now, the window could potentially close a year from now and it may not be there for him. Well, that seems calculating, perceptive, and actually, I got to say, fairly accurate. Not the impulsive actions of a man whose Trans-Siberian Railroad doesn't go all the way to Vladdy Vladstock. And when Rubio was on the Sean Hannity show the next day and asked by the host why Joe Biden doesn't achieve energy independence as a means of hurting Putin, Rubio answered. Vladimir Putin understands American politics really well. This is his fifth American president. And here's what he knows. Oh, so now he's a savvy student of the political scene. Go on. Joe Biden won't do that. He understands, okay, because he watches American politics very carefully. He understands that Joe Biden won't do that because of the squad, because of the radical Marxist left, because of his political base, because of the Green New Deal. He knows he's not going to do that. So in this case, Putin's not a swirling eyed loon. He has discerning insights, which just so happened to coincide with Marco Rubio's political hobby horses, or at least the ones he wants to emphasize in front of a Hannity audience. I could also make the point that we just heard a politician citing Marxism and saying some far out things and that politician's not Putin, but I won't make that point, or at least I will make it passive aggressively. But my actual point is that Marco Rubio says things not necessarily because those things are accurate, but because the saying of them somehow helps Marco Rubio by advancing the Rubio agenda. What might Rubio's agenda be in airing the theory that Putin has lost his rubles? Well, 
Rubio gets attention. He has something to say that's different than the regular insults of all the other politicians who just say Putin's evil, or in the case of some prominent members of Rubio's party who say that Putin's a strong genius. But also, Rubio might be pursuing a legitimate public policy goal of eroding Putin's standing among Russian elites. I am hearing the old man is a few babushka dolls short of a set. Yeah, it could work to weaken Putin. It could increase concerns that not only was the war a blunder, it was the product of a diseased mind that's not inspiring for future decisions. Of course, Putin might have such control on power, it doesn't matter, or the war can turn around from a Russian perspective pretty soon. But just as I am pointing out that there is not much reward in speculating about Putin's sanity, I'm not going to spend much time guessing at why Rubio and a few others are so intent on proving Putin insane. Vlad the Mad? Who knows? Vlad the Terrible is terrible enough, and that is the confirmable adversary who we have before us. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is mystical advisor in the court of Tsar Nicholas II. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.